Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. We value things based on how much dopamine they give us, right? I mean, if you say to someone, what would you rather have, a meal at a nice restaurant or $10,000? They're going to take $10,000 because that's going to give you more dopamine, right? Which would you rather have, um, $100 or the opportunity to give the keynote speech in front of your peers? Mm-hmm. You're going to take the thing that gives you the most dopamine. That is Dr. Daniel Lieberman, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University and author of the best-selling book, the molecule of more. Talking about dopamine and the profound role it plays in directing our behavior and ultimately in how our lives unfold. On today's episode of The Resilient Surgeon, Dr. Lieberman explores the two systems of the brain, the future system fueled by dopamine and the here and now system fueled by four different brain molecules, oxytocin, endocannabinoids, serotonins, and endorphins. And he shares with us how our mental well-being critically depends on the skillful management of these two systems. Understanding how these two systems work is a vital first step in our ability to manage our minds instead of our minds managing us. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, and today we are in for a masterclass on dopamine that will help us understand what our brains are doing to us and how we can more skillfully manage that seemingly unmanageable beast inside every one of our skulls. Dr. Lieberman is a tenured professor of psychiatry and vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry at George Washington University. He did his undergraduate work at St. John's College in Annapolis and medical school at NYU, where he also completed his residency in psychiatry at what is referred to as the Noah's Ark of Psychiatric Illness, Bellevue Hospital. From NYU, Dr. Lieberman joined the faculty of George Washington University in 1996, where he has remained since then while specializing in addiction medicine and bipolar disorders. I found Dr. Lieberman when I happened to be listening to a podcast with the Stanford neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who mentioned Dr. Lieberman's book, The Molecule of More. But Dr. Huberman didn't just mention it, he raved about it, saying it was incredibly well-written and that he wishes that he had written it. So I bought the book and devoured it. Now I have over 500 books on my Kindle, many of which are about resilience and behavioral science, and many are truly outstanding. But the molecule of more is in a league of its own. Dr. Lieberman has taken the entire scientific world of dopamine and distilled the often difficult concepts into a framework that is not only understandable, but actionable. The book is a masterpiece that details the glory 
and the hell of dopamine. And he gives clear strategies for how we can harness it and other feel-good brain molecules to be more resilient and to live a happier and more content life. Dr. Lieberman, welcome to the Resilient Surgeon Podcast. It's a real honor to have you join us. Thank you, it's great to be here. So I'd like to get a little background uh, on, on what led you into psychiatry and, and ultimately what led you to dopamine. Well, you know, I went to a sort of unusual uh, college for my undergraduate education. It's a school called St. John's College, a little tiny place, just about 400 people in the entire school. And there are no lectures, no exams. All we do is read the original sources of the great books of Western civilization. Wow. Plato, Aristotle, Homer, St. Augustine, Sir Isaac Newton, all of the most important thinkers. And what it led me to realize was that the brain is the single most important and the single most interesting thing there is in the universe. Uh, the brain is what produces creativity and inspiration and technology and poetry and art. And I decided that I wanted to spend my career studying the brain. Originally, I thought that I was going to do it um, as a psychologist, strictly from a psychology point of view. But one of my professors who I was very close to talked to me about this, and he persuaded me to go to medical school. He said, these days and going forward, it's really biology. That's where the money is. Mm -hmm. And you need to become a doctor if you want to study the mind, because you've got to study the brain. And I think he was right. Yeah, I do too, especially with the explosion of knowledge in brain science and an understanding of what's going on instead of trying to decipher it from the outside as, as if it's sort of a black box, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, now you trained at Bellevue. I, I was just curious, why is that called the Noah's Ark of psychiatric illness? You know, um, Bob Cancro, who was the chair when I was there, said, if there's one anywhere in the world, we have two. <laughs> and that's how it became the Noah's Ark. Uh, oh, great. I love it. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's fabulous. Okay. Well, I want to lead off the rest of the discussion with a quote from a past president of, of Stanford, Donald Kennedy. And, and it'll frame to some extent the, the, the rest of the discussion. He said, you have to work hard during the day at something you love. And then at night, you've got to enjoy it. And so I, I think that's a central theme of what we're going to talk about today. And I want people to kind of get that in their head. And we're going to come back to that at the end of the podcast. So in order for people that aren't currently immersed in the world of dopamine and brain science, I thought it would be very helpful to at least get some terms and some understanding of the biology of dopamine, the different circuits, if you will, that dopamine runs under. Uh, so we could move forward and have a more cogent discussion around, you know, the, the impact of dopamine on our lives. Yeah, yeah. So dopamine is a monoamine neurotransmitter, and um, it's kind of a conductor um, for an orchestra. It doesn't exactly carry information, but what it does is it turns the volume, so to speak, up and down in different parts of the brain, telling the horn section a little bit louder, the string section a little bit quieter. So yeah. there, there aren't really that many dopamine neurons in the brain. Um, there is a 0.0005% of the neurons in the brain are dopamine, but because they serve this conductor function, they have a very profound effect on our experience and our behavior. Uh, there are different circuits that use dopamine in the brain. Three main circuits, really. Um, one is called the mesolimbic circuit. Starts in the ventral tegmental area and synapses in the nucleus accumbens. And in the book, which uh, we've written on a somewhat less technical level, we call it the dopamine desire circuit, because that's the circuit that makes you want things. Another circuit that competes to some degree with the desire circuit starts again in the ventral tegmental area. This time it synapses in the frontal cortex, um, the uh, mesocortical pathway. We call that the control circuit because that uses rationality to look beyond desire to maximizing future resources um, in the farther future than the desire circuit looks at. 
And dopamine is about imposing your will upon the world. So the desire circuit tells us what we want. The control circuit tells us how to get it. And then we have the dopamine circuit that probably most doctors are most familiar with, and that's the nigrostriatal circuit. Right. Um, the one we use to initiate voluntary movement. So after we decide what we want inside our heads, figure out how we're gonna get it inside our heads, we activate our muscles to bring our inner world into our outer world and make something happen. That, that, that is just amazing. So this one molecule of dopamine is running the orchestra. I think that's a beautiful analogy that you've created there. And the orchestra is running the muscles, it's running our desire, and it's running our ability to strategize and get what we want in a planning and futuristic kind of way. Is that? Yes, yes that's okay. right. Yeah. You know, uh, I listened to a, a YouTube lecture with Daniel uh, Gilbert, the author of uh, Stumbling Upon Happiness. Mm. And he talks about the prefrontal cortex. And I just want to read uh, something that I put together and see if I'm on the mark with this. Uh, so, you know, over the last 2 million years, our brains have gotten a lot heavier from one and a quarter pounds to three pounds. And a majority of that has been because of the evolution of the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And Gilbert says that the prefrontal cortex works like a flight simulator does for pilots. Mm -hmm. It gives us the power to imagine an experience in our head before we try it out in real life. And here's a direct quote from him in his talk. Ben and Jerry's doesn't have liver and onion ice cream, and it's not because they whipped some up, tried it, and went yuck. It's because we can simulate that flavor in our prefrontal cortex and say yuck before we even make it. And, and so I, I thought of this line. Most of us sit on the couch with our prefrontal cortex machine whirling away with one simulation after another. But the motivation to get our butts off off the couch and pursue the thing we are imagining takes dopamine. And to get dopamine going, the thing we're imagining doing has to have meaning to us somehow. Is that an accurate statement? So dopamine, prefrontal cortex, and meaning is kind of the engine? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there. there there's yes. an enormous amount to talk about there. But if we, if we just focus on dopamine, by the way, what he's talking about, another term for it is mental time travel. Uh, right, I right. think it's a great evocative term. Yes. I really like that. And some people actually believe that it is this simulation of the future that led to the phenomenon of consciousness, that mm. we needed to become conscious in order to live these fictional potential realities in the future to decide which one is best. And I think it's absolutely fascinating because consciousness is such a deep mystery. Yeah, that's one of the great uh, problems, isn't it? I mean, where we all problem. came from. One of the hard problems, that's right. It's called a hard problem. A yeah. hard problem, yeah. Well, I, but you know, oh, I, I think you're referring to uh, control dopamine and desire dopamine. Yes. Control dopamine runs these simulations that let us choose from alternate futures without having to go through it. and put our lives in danger uh, if we choose mm -hmm. wrong. Uh, but it's the desire dopamine circuit, which is more primitive. Uh, that one's not in the prefrontal cortex. The desire right. dopamine circuit is in uh, the mammalian or even reptilian part of the brain. Um, that's the limbic you, system. Yeah. yeah, the limbic system. That's what you need uh, to turn the hypothetical into the real. Right. So we have this and, I, and I, I view that all these, you know, the prefrontal cortex and the control circuit is kind of being responsible for what we might call the American dream, you know, the ability to have success and acquire things and, and do all that. Yeah. But of course, the American dream didn't exist, you know, 500,000 years ago. Uh, so I thought it was fascinating when you talked about somebody stumbling across a bush of berries mm -hmm. and what that what that meant at that time in terms of survival and why this dopamine business is so important from an evolutionary survival standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when ever, pretty much everyone's heard of dopamine and right. typically the context they've heard it in is as the pleasure molecule. Right. And dopamine does deliver pleasure, but that's not really what it's for. 
what it's really for is the maximization of future resources. Uh, and yes, when we were evolving, there was no American dream, but there was the genetic dream. The genetic dream was survival, reproduction, and passing along that genes. And, and that's really what dopamine is all about. It, it's about increasing the likelihood of evolutionary success. So, you know, you've got uh, one of our ancient evolutionary ancestors walking along and everything's as it's always been. Nothing is new, nothing is novel. And so dopamine is at rest because there's no opportunity for maximizing future resources. If by chance, however, she stumbles across a berry bush that she's never seen before, it's new and it's a maximization of future resources a new source of food and increased likelihood that she and her descendants are going to survive. And that triggers the release of dopamine. And yeah, she experiences pleasure, a kind of pleasure that's reinforcing, that's going to make her want to search out this berry bush in the future, and that will help to keep her alive. And then the control circuit kicks in planning where we can find more berries. That's right, that's right. How <laughs> Yeah, it, it, was, it was chance that brought about this berry bush. Right. That's not good enough for a human being. That might be good enough for an animal, but a human being is going to use their control dopamine and say, how can I take this out of the hands of chance and guarantee that berries will always be available whenever I want them? Right, right. It's a dangerous then, thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, potentially incredible, but also dangerous is yeah. what I've learned. So, you know, that, that episode of finding the berries, that's a reward prediction error. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So that's a kind of a confusing term. And it took me a while to get that straight. And maybe you could illuminate us about what a reward prediction error is and why it's so central to dopamine's action. Yes, Th this is one of the essential reasons why dopamine is not simply the pleasure molecule. Right. So, um, you know, we've all gotten raises, you know, at work. And um, when you just find out that you're getting a big raise, it's very, very pleasurable. And you get a lot of dopamine and you think this is wonderful. Uh, I'm going to be so happy with this larger paycheck. Well, the third time you get that paycheck, there's no dopamine at all, right? It becomes the new normal. Um, and sometimes we expect it, sometimes we don't. It, it's the same thing when you buy a new car or a new TV. The first day you get it, you are all excited. This is the most wonderful thing in the world. It does not take long until it becomes the new normal and dopamine shuts down. Right. So the only thing that triggers the pleasure associated with dopamine is an unexpected reward. And that's reward prediction error. We go through life making all kinds of predictions about what's next, what kinds of resources are going to be available to us. These predictions help us achieve evolutionary success. Sometimes we're wrong. If we're wrong on the upside, we get dope, more dopamine release, and that feels fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, you're walking down the street. It's the same as it always has been everything is normal, suddenly you realize a new cafe has just opened up. That's going to give you dopamine. Okay. If you get a surprise on the downside, though, the opposite occurs. Now you've been going to this cafe every morning for your croissant and coffee. One day you're standing in line, cell phone rings. It's your boss saying, get into work immediately, drop whatever you're doing. You have to walk out of the cafe without your latte and croissant you've got a reward prediction error on the downside, dopamine activity drops and you experience resentment and feelings of deprivation. And that, that is really key. You know, these feelings, which we seem to be at the mercy of like they're, yeah. you know, wind gusts, but they're actually very explainable, you know, uh, what's going on in the brain. And that's one of the beauties of what you've written in terms of really explaining that. And I think that there's, there's a real advantage in being able to recognize it because yeah. by recognizing it, it allows us to take a step back and say, okay, I'm feeling excited or, okay, I'm feeling deprived. What do I want to do with this? 
I don't necessarily have to act on this. Uh, and, and knowing that it's your dopamine system reacting to reward errors allows you to approach it in, in perhaps a little bit more of a sophisticated way rather than simply emotionally reacting. Yeah, I, I'm, after reading your book, uh, I am so hyper aware now mm. of what my brain is telling me I, I want you know, or, or need, uh, and, and I don't have to necessarily pay attention to it. It doesn't make it easy, but at least I may not have to pay attention to it. Uh, you know, so that's the old days, and now we have the new days, the modern days. And can you comment on what I would consider to be the onslaught of dopamine stimulation uh, that we are confronted with and how that is having such a, I think, a profoundly negative impact on our health, mental health and our physical health in, in society from grocery stores laden with hyper-stimulating foods to phones and, and the like. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So um, dopamine is about increasing future resources. Consequently, if you want to sell something to somebody, the best thing you can do is stimulate their dopamine circuits mm -hmm. um, because that's going to give them the excitement, the enthusiasm, and the desire to get what you're selling. And so companies hire psychologists. They hire people who are experts in these dopamine circuits to figure out ways to most effectively stimulate them. That's why when Christmas time comes, you have Christmas Captain Crunch. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't have to buy the old Captain Crunch anymore, something yeah. brand new. Um, and, and that's why products are constantly new and improved. Uh, we all know a lot of times it, it, the changes are so minor as to be yeah. utterly trivial. But nevertheless, that new and improved gives us a little bit of a dopamine stimulus, wakes us up, makes us kind of excited. And in spite of our rational knowledge that this is nothing special, we can't help it. Can't help um, it, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that started happening, uh, I think in the 1950s when advertising uh, really started becoming more sophisticated, but now, it's gotten totally out of control with social media. Right. We all know um, how much time young people in particular spend on social media. And more and more we're learning about the destructive effect it has on their lives. That um, it seems to be an addiction that has a lot in common with chemical addictions. Right. And, and by the way, there is one thing that all addictive substances have in common. You know, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, marijuana, they look like they're affecting the brain in very different ways. Somebody intoxicated on heroin looks very different from somebody intoxicated on cocaine. Every addictive substance that we know of has one thing in common, and you can guess what it is. It boosts dopamine in the mesolimbic circuit, in the desire the circuit. mesolimbic circuit. Yeah, that's why it's addictive. And, and so what these social media companies are doing is they're trying to mimic heroin. They're trying to boost dopamine in the mesolimbic system and they do a great job of it. Uh, one, one of the things that they've developed is the infinite scroll. Uh, when, when the internet first came out, you would load a page and eventually it would come to an end. Now it doesn't. The more you scroll, the more stories, the more posts are loaded. And you can be scrolling and you can realize that you're very unhappy and that you're not enjoying it. I have experienced that. I mean, it, it actually, it sinks you. I, I don't know yeah, what it is, but it it, it's not pleasurable. But you don't stop because you think one more scroll right. may have a story that could be incredibly important. Because once in a while, there is a story that, that is useful. You say, wow, this is relevant to something I'm studying or it's relevant to a patient I'm treating or relevant to something I'm interested in. You never know when that berry bush is going to appear. The so, berry bush. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. So you found a berry bush in that <laughs> scroll two days ago you might keep, and your dopamine circuit does, enslaves you, essentially. It enslaves you. That's exactly what it does. And, you know, and the, uh, we're having a guest, Dr. Robert Lustig, who's the author of Hack, The Hacking of the American Mind, in which he details quite well 
the the corporations uh, and what his interest is from an endocrinologic standpoint and mm. obesity and the, the, you know, the obesity epidemic. And his contention is, is that corporations have just done this to us essentially uh, through, through exactly the kind of manipulations that you're talking about. But, you know, being in the grocery store, scrolling on a website, all these things, they really highlight the fact that, you know, I'm not eating something. I'm not, doing anything it's the anticipation piece the possibility of a reward that gets us going right i mean it really beautifully highlights that yeah that's right and that dopamine is really an anticipation molecule yeah uh, dopamine is about the future and that has very important ramifications because it means you can want something very very badly which will give you tons of dopamine Maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way, good way, it could be enthusiasm, bad way, it could be an unpleasant craving. Let's say it's a good way. You're very, very enthusiastic. The problem is that once you get it, it's no longer in the future. It's now in the present. And dopamine as a neurotransmitter doesn't code for present experiences. As soon as you get the thing you want, dopamine shuts down. And I think that we've all had that experience where you want something so badly, as soon as you get it, it becomes almost meaningless. So one of the phenomenon we see that is with buyer's remorse. Right. Can you uh, talk through that a little bit? Because it was beautifully described. The, the three options you, when you have to deal with uh, buyer's remorse in the book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, uh, I... I um, you think about some large purchase that you're very, very excited about. Um, maybe you're researching it on the internet, right? You're reading all about it. You're going to forums of enthusiasts. You're researching and it's so much fun and you're so enthusiastic and maybe you place your order and it's going to take a month to arrive. And, and the dopamine the is just building and building and you're having a good old time. <laughs> yeah, you're spending so much time on the internet reading about it and hearing yeah. people talk about it. And then it arrives and yeah, it's kind of nice, but you're not obsessively reading on the internet anymore. You're not constantly thinking about it. You're kind of lukewarm at that point. Uh, I had a patient who, um, he was a womanizer and um, he could not establish a long-term relationship and, and he wanted to, he wanted to. But what happened is that he would meet a woman, he would get extremely excited about her he would think she is the one he would pursue her. And as soon as he was successful and she essentially said, yes, he would lose all interest in her right? because he was only interested in the dopaminergic thrills. And as soon as the future, the possible, the potential became the real, the present and his dopamine shut down, he was unable to shift from dopamine to the present oriented chemicals and he lost all interest. Yeah, that's a beautiful lead into the next piece that I wanted to cover with you. And that is there, there's another group of what I would, I guess, call brain, brain pleasure molecules, aren't there? And, and you so beautifully, and I think this is one of the central key messages of your book is that we have this other set of pleasure molecules but they're so dwarfed by dopamine and they operate in different realms. Could you talk about that and the here and now molecules? Yeah, yeah. So we, we contrast the future orientation of dopamine to the here and now, the present oriented um, focus of these other neurotransmitters. And um, we mentioned a few of them. There's serotonin and uh, among other things that is responsible for mood and anxiety. Emotions are something we experience in the present moment. There's oxytocin, which orients us towards social relationships. You know, again, something that, that happens right now. And then there are here and now pleasure molecules um, such as endorphin and endocannabinoid. And we use the, the same word pleasure uh, for these endorphin, endocannabinoids, and dopamine, but it's a very different experience. The pleasure associated with dopamine is an excitement. It, it's stimulating. It makes mm -hmm. us feel confident. 
It makes us feel enthusiastic. It makes us feel energized. The here and now pleasure molecules, on the other hand, are very, very different. They give us feelings of satisfaction, contentment, satiety. Um, if people are very dopaminergic, if they're very, very interested in dopamine, sometimes they don't like those here and now pleasure molecules very much. Right. They, they feel a little bit touchy-feely, um, and, and that may not be the nicest feeling, um, but they're really losing out on a very important part of life by being exclusively dopaminergic. And, and what causes the release of those here and now molecules? And could you please talk about that distinction between up and down and arms reach? I think that's a critical uh, facet of this discussion. Yes. Um, other animals have dopamine and these here and now chemicals, but of course, they don't have the kind of sophisticating processing power that humans have. And, and as I'm sure you know, evolution does bizarre things. Uh, so oftentimes what it does is it will take one system uh, that's working well and, and it will change it and make it do something completely different. Um, so for example, in psychiatry, it really annoys us that the human body uses serotonin for platelet aggregation. Because when we give patients SSRIs, they're at increased risk for bleeds. Um, but nature does that. So dopamine was originally used um, for animals to process things that are off in the distance. Um, and essentially, dopamine processes the things you see when you look up. The here and now chemicals, by contrast, process the things you see when you look down. So when you look down, you're looking into what's called the peripersonal space. That's the space within arm's reach around you. And, and if you or your listeners were to look down right now, they would probably see things like a pen, a cell phone, a cup of coffee. Um, these are things that you own. These are things that you can interact with, that you can enjoy, maybe even consume right here, right now. And we call our interaction with things in the peripersonal space consumatory. And that doesn't just refer to eating and drinking, consuming, it also refers to consummation. What happens at the end when you reach your goal, the consummation of all your efforts, the satisfaction that you've worked so hard for, now it's yours. Now, when you look up, you see everything else, the whole rest of the world that is outside arm's reach. Those are things that you don't have. The reason why up dopamine became associated with the future is because if there's something in your extra personal space that you want or need, you're not gonna have it now, you're gonna have it in the future. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be a future that's a few seconds away, but, but it could be a future that's years away it doesn't matter. It's I see a peach in a bowl. I want it. I got to get out of the chair, walk over and get it, decide, you know, is there going to be juice drippings, all that stuff. I got to go through the machinations. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Or, or maybe you want a medical degree and, and it's going to take you four yeah. years. Both are in the, all the same. Yeah. All the same. So um, in order to get it, you've got to um, use effort. You've got to have motivation. You've got to have persistence. That's the desire circuit. And in many cases, you also need planning, and that's the control circuit. So it began spatially, peripersonal down, extrapersonal up, and it became temporal here and now versus the future. Right. And so when we are engaged with our senses, our five senses and emotion, we are in the peripersonal space or the here and now, and from those activities are released the four, what I, I, is the right term to use pleasure molecules, you know, the endocannabinoids and the endorphins, serotonin, oxytocin. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call serotonin oxytocin pleasure molecules. Right. Uh, oxytocin, I'm going to say, plays an even more important role than pleasure, and that's social interaction. Right. You know, as you pointed out, uh, one of the reasons we have such large brains is because of our prefrontal cortex. Um, one of the things our prefrontal cortex does is participate in our ability to interact socially. 
Uh, other parts of the brain do as well, such as the temporal cortex. Um, and one of the theories of a large brain is that it was so that we could manage social relationships more because it doesn't matter how big, strong, or smart you are, you can't compete with a gang. And right. so cooperating with people is an incredibly effective evolutionary strategy. And um, so oxytocin, the social neurotransmitter, very, very important. Okay, so we've got the future, dopamine, the here and now, and we need to learn to work with both of those to achieve what you would call the good life or happiness. Yes, that's right. And it's hard. You know, we, we tend to be born with a tendency towards one or the other. Right. Uh, we've got the type A workaholic who's very dopaminergic. And we've got the pot smoking basement dweller who is very <laughs> here and now. <laughs> I was one of those once when I was a teenager. <laughs> but I was also very dopaminergic. I'm quite certain of that. Uh, and the irony <laughs> is that the person who's best able to afford things like beach houses is probably the least equipped to enjoy it when he gets right, it. Right, right. Uh, so um, you've, you've, you've touched on dopaminergic personalities and I suspect our audience of cardiothoracic surgeons probably <laughs> might veer just a little bit towards the dopaminergic personality side. Can you talk about the kinds of dopaminergic personalities that, that you are familiar with or that you see the three different kinds and, and how that may fit in with us? Yes, that's right. So the kind that we're most familiar with is the type A workaholic. And I think that that would include the cardiothoracic surgeons. Um, cardiothoracic surgeon spends an enormous amount of time uh, just working, working, working. And the stakes are so incredibly high. Often they don't have the opportunity. You know, a surgeon doesn't say, oh, look at the clock. You know, I'm going home. Um, they just keep working until the job is done and their patients are um, stable. And I think that many actually value that about their career. Um, they love being that crucial in somebody's life. Um, the flip side is it's hard for them to relax, which we'll get to in a moment. But that's yeah. one kind of dopaminergic personality, the kind that is always working, working, working for a better future, a bigger bank account, uh, a stronger reputation, a healthier patient. It's always about the future. And it never um, ends. It never ends. No. It never ends. No. no, because the future never comes, right? Right. Uh, it, it's like Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the Red Queen says you get jam every other day. Never today. It's always jam tomorrow and yesterday, but you <laughs> never get jam today. Yeah. Uh, and that's dopamine. Um, then there's the, uh, the hedonist who, who's always pursuing uh, dopaminergic pleasures, wine, women, and song, as they say. Um, and then there's the artist. Um, the artist who's always creating new things. Um, and in some ways they're like the workaholic. Um, you know, the artist is never satisfied. Uh, they never stop to enjoy what they've done. They're always on to the next thing. Um, and, and they're absolutely obsessed with their passion. Uh, a lot of times they will stay in their studio or, or in their writing room, you know, writers, uh, whomever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they won't interact with their family. They won't change their clothes. They won't take showers because they're so driven about creating something new. Uh, and then once the work of art is done, they lose interest and they're on to the next thing. It seems so, as if obsession is one of the key words behind all three. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and obsession, obsession is a wonderful thing for the species it moves us forward as a species, inventors, artists, business people, surgeons, but it can lead to misery for the individual. You don't see a lot of happy artists, I'll tell you that. You know, this brings back a personal memory. I remember uh, when I was about 55 um, and I certainly fell into that category of what I would call a hard working driven, you know, dopaminergic personality, but I found myself uh, in a constant state of low grade misery. And I mm -hmm. couldn't quite put my finger on it. It might be burnout. It might be all these things, but uh, I think that really did play a role uh, in the lack of balance with the here and now 
activities. And it was so well encapsulated by a, a colleague of mine. And he said, you know, I was about 52 and I walked into the garage, looked at the BMW and said, how in the hell did I get here? You know, there was a, there was a sort of a void in his life wasn't connected to people, you know, all these things and his house and the boat on the lake. And suddenly he didn't give a damn about any of it at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, I think it's more common than we, than we realize. Mm -hmm. All right. So, you know, I want to talk uh, now, if we can, a little bit about the, the really good side of dopamine and creativity is certainly a key one. Uh, and how, how does dopamine play such a critical role in creativity? And I think this applies to creativity at work or, or it doesn't necessarily mean you're making masterpieces with, with a brush. It's all forms of creativity. Yeah. Creativity is kind of a mysterious thing. Um, you know, we, we use that mental time travel to imagine things that don't exist. And once we imagine them, we can make them a reality. Um, Creative ideas, though, sometimes come out of the blue mm -hmm. and they just strike us. This is a whole different conversation, and it's related to, to a book I'm working on now oh. about the unconscious mind. Absolutely fascinating, but we'll put that aside for now. Um, you know, because where do novel ideas come from? You know, when Archimedes lowered himself into the bath, saw the water right. overflowing, and made the connection to the volume of an irregular solid, where did that connection come from? The connections. Yeah, yeah. he didn't work his way through it. it. It came, yeah. But anyway, once you get the connection and, and once you imagine something new, then it's dopamine that's going to help make you make it a reality. And one of the beautiful things about creativity is that in some ways it combines the future-focused dopamine with the present-focused here and now. Right. And that's when the brain works at its best. And when it's really working at its best, what we experience is the flow state, where essentially we lose ourselves in the work of the present moment. And our egos cease to exist. Uh, we're, we're in our work. We don't think about the future. We don't think about the past. We're in the present moment, but we're doing something productive that will improve the future. And so we've got both of these systems turned up to the maximum. And there are few experiences that feel as good as that flow state. And you really hit the nail on the head. I think when, when talking about surgeons in the operating room and mm -hmm how many hundreds of times that I look up and all of a sudden it's four o'clock in the afternoon and it felt like just 30 minutes almost, you know? Uh -huh. Yeah. So you're using in the operating room, your hands, your senses and your mind and thinking and future all at once. So it's a perfect example of, of what you just talked about. Yeah. And, and I would say that probably every single surgeon I've ever met their favorite thing in the world more than anything else is being in the operating room. And then mastery, tenacity, any comments about that and the role of dopamine? Because I, you know, those are very powerful things and dopamine seems to be the engine behind a lot of that also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. You know, mastery is another example of the two systems working together. Usually, uh, dopamine is constantly saying, not enough, not enough, not enough. And one of the examples we give in the book is Buzz Aldrin. Um, here's a guy who walked on the moon. And um, when he got back, people said, hey, what does it feel like to walk on the moon? And, and he said, we weren't feeling. It's not about feeling. It, you know, Buzz Aldrin's not a touchy-feely guy. He doesn't want to talk about feelings. And, and they said, yeah, but, but what were your emotions. You're, you're on this <laughs> celestial body. And he said, walking on the moon was just something we did. Now we should do something else. This guy's probably one of the most dopaminergic guys you can imagine, and it's never enough. Now, mastery is an interesting exception to that rule. When you feel mastery over something, for a moment, it's enough. Mastery means mm. you 
squeezed every drop of resource you can out of whatever it is that you're working on. And your dopamine system says, nice job. I'm going to break. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to let you enjoy this before forcing you to move on to the next accomplishment. And I know that feeling and it is wonderful. It Uh is really wonderful. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, talking about uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, and challenges of a dopaminergic personality. I mean, you, so he ran into some troubles mm. uh, as did Lance Armstrong mm. and Steve Jobs. Uh, despite their incredible successes, there were challenges. Can you kind of talk about that? I guess this would lead into sort of the downside of a dopaminergic personality profile. Yes, yes. So Buzz Aldrin, he got back from the moon and he was ready for the next challenge. How do you top walking on the moon though, right? Um, and uh, that led to some emotional problems and um, he started drinking and he became an alcoholic and he became depressed. He, um, he got married, he got divorced, he got married again, he got divorced again and, and his life was in a real shambles. But um, just as a little pitch for psychiatry, uh, mm-hmm. he did get into treatment with psychiatrists or a psychiatrist and he got better. And Good. he went on yeah. to do uh, more things. He designed a new kind of uh, rocket engine and he did all kinds of amazing things. So, so he did pull it together in some respect, but, but it, is, it is a risk. Lance Armstrong is another very, very dopaminergic person. Um, there's a story about him hanging out with other cyclists and they're kind of, you know, they've been working all day long and now it's time to relax. And he doesn't want to relax. And he says, I'm going to go ride. Who wants to come with me? And nobody did because they had worked all day long and now they earned it. And he said at that moment, he knew he was going to win the race mm-hmm. uh, because he had more passion than anyone else. But winning, winning the race, desiring to win the race, working for it was a dopaminergic phenomenon and dopamine can become addictive. And he did become addicted to this success dopamine. And um, like many addicts, getting the drug became more important than anything else, um, even following the rules. And so as we all know, he began to cheat and he was stripped of all his medals in the end. Yeah, it's an addiction. It was an addiction. It was, yeah. It's all funneled around dopamine as always. Right. You know, because dopamine is one way in which we rate the value of things. Uh, We value things based on how much dopamine they give us, right? I mean, if you say to um, someone, what would you rather have, a meal at a nice restaurant or $10,000? They're going to take $10,000 because that's going to give you more dopamine, right? Which would you rather have, um, $100 or the opportunity to give the keynote speech in front of your peers? Mm-hmm. You're going to take the thing that gives you the most dopamine. What would you rather get, a shot of dopamine or be an honest person? Mm-hmm. For addicts, it's, it's a shot of dopamine for sure. Shot of dopamine, and that can yeah. destroy their life. Yeah. 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 With, with Steve Jobs, um, People who have lots and lots of dopamine often don't have sophisticated here and now systems. And Steve Jobs was a notorious jerk. Um, He he was incredibly cruel and emotionally cold uh, to the people around him. He was a terrible husband. He was a terrible father. And and although many, many people admire him, uh, and rightly so, he, he was a genius and he was not only a technological genius, he was also a design genius. Right. In some ways he changed the world, but he was also a jerk. Yeah, your quote of Einstein is really relevant here, who is also a genius. My passionate sense of social justice and social responsibility has always contrasted oddly with my pronounced lack of need for direct contact with other human beings. I love humanity, but I hate humans. Yeah. Dopamine is, is theoretical, you know, they're disembodied ideas. It, and and right. so I can, I can be passionate about the human race and just absolutely can't stand my roommate or anybody else who gets within three feet of me. Right. Right. Yeah. If, can we talk uh, briefly about love and sex, something mm-hmm. that everybody has experience with, I presume. Yes. And, you know, the, the process of falling into love 
and making love and how that how that plays out in the dopamine future sense and then the here and now sense. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think that uh, it's probably obvious to everybody that falling in love is a dopaminergic experience. It's some people think it, uh, it, it's the greatest blessing uh, that there is falling in love with somebody. It makes us incredibly excited and it makes us envision this perfect future. Uh, our, our lives are changed. They will never be the same, which is true in some respect, but not quite in the way we expect it to, right? It, it, it's this excitement. And um, then inevitably love fades and sometimes passionate love fades. Sometimes when that happens, we think, we think something has gone wrong and, and we think, gosh, uh, maybe I was mistaken. Uh, maybe this um, th this godlike figure that I fell in love with isn't really the one for me at all, and I because I don't feel that way anymore. Now I need to go and find somebody else. That's probably not true. Uh, it's probably simply neurobiology that that kind of passionate love uh, is not designed to last forever. On average, it lasts about twelve months. Uh, some people get lucky and it lasts longer. Sometimes it lasts shorter but 12 months is the average. Now, does that mean that people can't love each other throughout life? No, of course not. But the love has to evolve from a dopaminergic, passionate love to a here and now companionate love. And it's no longer this frenzy of passion, it's companionate love. This is someone I trust, I know, my life is intertwined with them on a very deep level and they are my best friend. And, and it doesn't have the sparkles of passionate love, but it's pretty nice. And, and some people would even argue in some ways it's better. Mm -hmm. and, and so vital too, as shown by the Harvard men's study, right? Yes, yes. Uh, you know more about that than me. Uh, tell me what you're thinking about. Well, so the Harvard men's study tracked a group of Harvard graduates. I think it was starting in the early 50s or somewhere. One of them included John F. Kennedy. And they found, and they, this is an incredibly extensive tracking. We're talking about MRIs, lab studies, interviews. I mean, the level of detail is astounding. There's a phenomenal TED talk uh, about the Harvard study, uh, which we can put in the show notes later. But basically what they found was that the quality of your relationships long-term was the primary determinant of how long you live and how, how happy you were. Uh, and and, and it's, it's a testimony to the need for that companionate uh, love, as you call it, and, and how vital it is. And, and, and social interaction is something that happens in the here and now. Right. And that is something that successful people I would say, especially physicians have trouble with. Um, you don't get happiness from a big bank account. Um, you don't get happiness from material possessions. You might get excitement as you're anticipating getting them. Once you get them though, it's over, it's over. And, and, and so, yeah, I would just encourage the listeners, think about the here and now, think about relationships. You know, if that's something that you're not used to prioritizing, try to connect the feeling you get in the operating room where you are very much in the here and now. And, and, and can you be that same way with people that you love? Can you be with them in the present moment and not off thinking about something else? Right. And, you know, the here and now, correct me if I'm wrong about it, it those, it's activated by petting a, a, a dog or, or an animal that you love. It's yeah. by enjoying a good meal. It's by touch and cuddling, by good conversation with somebody. All these things, if you can be present to that, are incredibly rewarding. And, and I, I have to admit, I mean, my own experience prior to retiring from active surgery, uh, you know, I used to be anxious on Sunday mornings, wondering what I was going to do all day because I didn't have a structure to it. You know, it was kind of a day off and uh, I was always tracking on what's next, what's next, what's next. And when I retired, suddenly 
I was at home and I would go out and I had to like have much more time with my wife and my kids. And I, and I remember going out to the garden with my wife and spending time out there and she's crabbing at me because I'm not doing things right and stuff. But I remember I had to work at learning how to enjoy doing that with her. And God, I did accomplish that. I mean, I love it now. I actually train myself to be more present for those things. And I actually became kind of afraid of my old sort of, if you would call it dopaminergic self, because I felt it kind of, it, as you say, dopamine lies. I, I thought that was a, a brilliant statement. And in a way it did lie to me. And the American dream even lies to you to some extent. Yeah, it promises you that if you accumulate and attain that you will be happy. Uh, but dopamine lies because dopamine can't function in the present moment. And that's where happiness occurs. And that's one of the messages that I'm trying to help bring to surgeons uh, is that these things can be cultivated. You know, we've been delivered an operating system, personal operating system that's really heavily so dramatically influenced by our surgical training and our careers. And it's, in my opinion, it tends to be out of balance and you can actually definitively cultivate these things. And the impact is really just profound. And yeah. that's my experience. We spend most of our lives working to uh, prepare ourselves to make an impact on the world. Right. And uh, there's a very clear relationship between the training and the impact. The idea that you can work to train yourself to be happy, I think is less intuitive. Uh, why do you work to be happy? Happy is something that you just be. Um, and then you might say, well, why would you work to be happy? Where's the value in that? Uh, but of course that's ridiculous. And yeah. we, think, we think that just um, meeting our goals will make us happy. That if we become the chief surgeon, if we get our name in the best doctor list, uh, but no, that doesn't make us happy. Happiness is something different and happiness is something that you also have to work on being able to experience. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, so a couple last things that I'd love to cover. And I, I, I coined this term, the resilience bank account, and it's a set of habits. And I didn't know this when I coined the term and I, and I wrote about the various habits. I didn't know anything about the here and now. All right. And, and I experienced dramatic improvements in my contentment after I retired. And you could say, well, it's just because I retired, but actually, no, I made a concerted effort to meditate, become more present, uh, to be more grateful, to be more connected with my children. I created a surgeon's group uh, and, and to be more self-compassionate. And I view those things as kind of my mental operating room theater those four things, connection, self-compassion, gratitude, and mindfulness. And they, I didn't, I didn't understand at the time, but they really are kind of a, a core set of habits that can foster the here and now uh, uh, rewards, if you want to call it that, might be the right word, but it, foster getting into the here and now space. So, do you have any thoughts about that? And particularly the role of mindfulness or meditation and helping us De helping deliver us from the tyranny of dopamine. Yes. Meditation used to be viewed as this sort of mystical thing, um, this sort of crunchy, chewy thing. And, and you know, um, Congress many, many years ago earmarked money for the NIH uh, to test alternative therapies. And they tested a whole bunch of them, Reiki, acupuncture, all, all kinds of things, including meditation none of them separated from placebo except meditation. Mm -hmm. And they replicated and replicated and replicated and meditation always separated. And then interestingly, um, the Dalai Lama was touring the United States and he met a Stanford neuroscientist and they started talking about imaging studies. And the Dalai Lama was interested in that. And so he said, I would like, um, my monks to cooperate with neuroscientific researchers so that we can learn more about this mystical religious practice from a different point of view. 
And as a result, there are dozens of neuroimaging studies of meditation. And what we find is that it's essentially as exercise is to the body, meditation is to the brain. Um, the cortex thickens, the amygdala, the alarm center shrinks, uh, new connections established between different parts of the brain, allowing you to process information from multiple perspectives. So um, there's a reason why meditation has been practiced for thousands and thousands of years. And that is, it's the real deal. It, it actually works. And I think that uh, everybody knows how important exercise is and how it improves probably every single organ system in our body. Right. Meditation is the same for the brain. Uh, it has positive effects on everything that the brain does. And like exercise is hard. Uh, you got to make it a habit. It takes effort. But if you can do it, it leads to happiness. And that's a pretty nice goal to get out of something. Yeah, it is. And one of the, one of the reasons that people may have trouble with it, you go and exercise and you feel the results right away. Meditation takes longer and it's not so immediate. And for people that are used to like, okay, I, I'm not getting enough action here on this, you know, not an, enough immediate result that can be frustrating, but it's one of those things. If you stay with it, it's profound, the impact that it has. Yeah. And I think that um, for the, for your listeners, it, it's helpful if they know what's going on. Uh, because if you understand, it's easier to work with the process right. rather than let your impatience get away right. with you. Well, one last thing, and that is, uh, I'd like to touch on how we can utilize these two things, the, the upper, the extra personal space and the peripersonal space here and now as, as a leadership tool. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you want to be an effective leader and you talk about agentic and affiliative relationships, uh, you know, there's a Steve agentic, meaning, you know, there's a purpose behind the relationship. You know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a reason for it. It's not just warm, fuzzy feelings and being a friend. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs was certainly on the agentic side of that to an extreme in a problematic way. On the flip side, if you're too affiliative, you may not be effective as a leader. So how can we combine these two qualities and become effect, more effective leaders uh, in all that we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, that, um, I think that we just want to approach it in a thoughtful fashion. Uh, we want to recognize when is it appropriate to go into our dopamine circuits? That's when we're working towards a goal. When is it appropriate to go in our H&N circuits? That's when we are enjoying the fruits of our hard work or trying to strengthen the uh, relationship bond with another person. So with a leader, there really used to be this focus on the agentic, uh, working mm -hmm. together with other people to accomplish a goal. But more and more, we're realizing that the effectiveness of those teams is also dependent on the quality of the bonds. And as you say, that's affiliative, strengthening the quality of those bonds. And, and it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. We know people mm. who are too affiliative. Their relationship with their teams are too close. They're too personal. Right. And um, they, they get into their people's lives in a way that can easily become inappropriate, or they lose the ability to make hard decisions because these are their friends now and they don't wanna harm them. We know people who are too agentic. They're cold, calculating, and they cannot get loyalty from their team members. So it's not simplistic, it's a hard problem, but being able to know the problem is there and to think about it in a clear and thoughtful manner, that's the first step and that will give you a big advantage. And this is the brilliance behind your book and everything that you've done to create that masterpiece because it provides that awareness about biochemically what's going on. And instead of I should be, or this, that you have a potential for wisdom here and discernment. If you know these things, you understand them and you can apply a mindful approach to these things. You, I, I can assure you, it will improve all walks of, of one's life. Wouldn't you agree? I would definitely agree with that. The first yeah. step is understanding. And yeah. then 
once you know how the system works, you know where to apply your limited energy to the biggest effect. Exactly, exactly, beautifully put. Well, it's been a real, real pleasure speaking with you today. And I, I just thank you so much for your willingness to share uh, your time and your uh, expertise with us. It's been, a, it's been a joy. So thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and where, where can people find you if they want to look you up? I am at danielzlieberman.com. Z is in zebra. Okay. And you've got the new book coming up on the unconscious. Is it the unconscious mind or what? Yeah, it, it's about the uh, link between the unconscious mind and ancient traditions of magic seen through the lens of modern science. Fantastic. Oh, I, I, I bet it'll be another tour de force, just like the molecule of more. Thank and I, I, again, I encourage everybody to get that book, read it, digest it, internalize it. it it's a profound, profound work. So again, thank you, Dr. Lieberman, and uh, all the best to you. Thanks so much. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.